Matthew chapter 28 is where we're going to be headed. And by God's grace, after 11 months, we are going to complete the gospel according to Matthew. So as you guys make your way that direction, having been here now uh, for 28 chapters, you might remember that Matthew is writing to predominantly Jewish audience. And he's writing uh, with the theme that Jesus is their Messiah, their Mashiach, the anointed one. He's their king that they've been waiting for, their priest that they've looked for, the prophet that's been prophesied about. And so in chapters 1 through 10, what we found is that the king was revealed by Matthew. He, he began with a genealogy showing that he has the kingly lineage in the line of David. But then, interestingly enough, in chapters 11 through 13, we see that the king wasn't met with the fanfare that we might have thought. Instead, he was met with resistance. They didn't care very much for his message, especially the religious leaders and the elite. And so as Jesus was resisted, in chapter 14, he then began to retreat. If they didn't want to hear the message, he took the message outside of the nation of Israel. He went to Syrophoenicia and to Syria and to Lebanon, taking his message with him as he went. But as he retreated, he didn't go off by himself. He took his disciples along with him and used this time period to actually teach and to train and to build up the ministry in them that would continue after his death and after his exit off the scene. Now, in chapter 21, we see the retreat is followed by Jesus steadfastly setting his face towards Jerusalem. That's what Luke chapter 9 says. He knew he had a job to do. He had a purpose for being here. And so he, he set his face towards Jerusalem. And it was there in chapter 21 of Matthew that we see him come in triumphantly, that Jesus walked into the city. People were excited. They cheered, Hosanna, because their king had finally come. Except uh, the issue is they went from uh, downright resistance to complete and total rejection of the king. It didn't take long before they didn't care for King Jesus' message, and they flatly rejected him all the way until a chapter 27, where we were last week, where the final rejection looked like his death upon a cross there at Golgotha in Latin, Calvary. That's where Jesus drew his final breath, but upon taking his final breath, he said this word recorded in John's gospel to Telestai, paid in full. He did exactly what he came to do, paid the price for our sin there upon the cross, all there in one moment. Now, as he has stated, paid in full, though, how do we know the payment was accepted? <laughs> what way do we know that the payment was actually enough to cover? And that's where we find ourselves today. Chapter 28, the resurrection, it's important to understand, is the receipt that the payment was accepted. Because if Jesus had just died for our sins and just covered our sins and stayed dead, so do we. If we partake in his death, then we also must partake in his resurrection. And so that's the beautiful part about where we're going to be in Matthew 28 this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to 28, Matthew 28, verse 1, where we see, And now, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. And so we find that these two Marys, Mary Magdalene and also Mary, this is the mother of James the Less, one of the disciples, they come to visit the tomb of Jesus. They came, we're told in other gospel accounts, with spices and embalming fluids to anoint the body of Jesus that had been buried three days earlier. Now they had to wait until the Sabbath to come because they were not allowed to travel Otherwise, they would be violating Sabbath laws. And so the Sabbath 
runs in Judaism from 6 p.m. on Friday until 6 p.m. on Saturday. So the next morning was the earliest they could get there. There's no light switch to turn on when you get to the tomb. So they needed daylight in order to see the body of Jesus. But interestingly enough, they go to the tomb knowing that there was a stone in front of it. They go with embalming fluids and, and spices and things to anoint his body, knowing that there would be no way unless God provided a way for them to be able to get in to Jesus. They went there by faith. Now, interestingly enough, doctrinally, these ladies were all wrong. Now, doctrine is just a fancy way for teaching. If they had listened to the teaching of Jesus, they would have known that he wasn't going to be there. Jesus said, after the third day, I'm going to rise again. Doctrinally, they were all messed up. But devotionally, they were spot on. They went to the tomb of Jesus to worship. They had intention, they had good intentions to go to worship the king. They might have been all messed up devotionally, but or doctrinally, but devotionally, they were in the right spot. And by faith, they went believing that somehow God was going to allow them access. I say that because I think oftentimes uh, we see situations where there's a stone in the way, and we're not sure how God could possibly make a way, and so many times we just don't even bother trying. (laughs) There is no way I'm going to get access to this point, to this place, and yet for these ladies, they believe somehow God would make a way. In verse 2, and behold, there was a great earthquake, For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone from the door and sat on it. And his his countenance was like lightning, and his clothing was as white as snow. And so we see the angel of the Lord actually comes down and rolls the stone away. But don't you find it interesting that in children's church, we always read that the stone was rolled away and then Jesus went out. But scripturally, um, the stone was rolled away. But Jesus is already gone. (laughs) Jesus didn't need any stone to be rolled away for him to exit the tomb. The stone had to be rolled away for them to get inside and see that he was already gone. And so the angel of the Lord comes down. The faith that these women had of knowing God would take care of things before they got there. And I want to encourage you guys that if there's a stone in your life that is in the way and you're so sure it cannot be moved, by faith believe that he can do it. And what you'll find is more often than not, he will have already rolled it out of the way before you ever even get there. And so we see this takes place for these ladies in verses 3. And and then in verse 4, we read, excuse me, in verse 3, we see his countenance was like lightning and his clothing was as white as snow and the guards shook for fear of him and became like dead men. These Roman guards, uh, historians say a, a contingent of Roman soldiers was 50. That means there were 50 guards there. We, we often think there were one or two. Fifty trained Roman soldiers were there, and at the sight of the angel of the Lord, they were like dead men. These highly trained, highly skilled, some of the best soldiers the world has ever known, even some of the most cruel that the world has ever known. We saw that in chapter 27. They were terrified at the angel of the Lord. Now, why would this be? Did he come with a flaming sword? Maybe it was the wind from his wings that terrified them. I, I, would, I would submit to you that this wasn't at all what they were terrified of. They were terrified of his purity. That purity is actually the thing that struck fear in the hearts of these evil men. That so often we think that God's got to 
give us a great flaming sword. And don't do you understand that it was actually the light of Jesus that extinguished the darkness? That's what John says in John chapter 1. That, that it is purity in our lives that so often when we, we want Jesus to drive something out, we want him to get rid of something in our lives, that it is, pure, it is purity and holiness and meekness. These are the weapons that we have as a Christian people. And so when it comes to wanting to see stones rolled away, whether it's in your marriage or in relationships or at your workplace, I want to encourage you people to be a people of purity. Jesus said it, it says in Matthew chapter 5 that it's blessed be the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. These are the lessons we've learned throughout the gospel of Matthew. Now then, in verse 5, but the angel answered and said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who is crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. So they, these angels come to these women, and they've got these words of encouragement. Hey, don't be afraid. Now, I realize there are 50 Roman soldiers laying flat on their face because they're terrified, but hey, ladies, don't be afraid. It's all going to be okay. But, but here's the thing. What did, what did they go to to reinforce these ladies to not be fearful. Read, it, read there with me again in verse 6. He is not here. He is risen as he said. The word of God. The word of Jesus. The words of Jesus were the encouragement that they gave to these two women to not be fearful. And so when it comes to things that scare us to death, in our lives, when it comes to stones that we're not sure can be rolled away, and then they are, and then we, we get these visions and these feelings like God is with us, but then it's terrifying at times. It's terrifying in these situations. Where should we turn? But turn to God's word. Turn to the words of Jesus. This is what they tell them, and what we find is that the word of God will always come to pass. Some of my favorite lines in all the Old Testament are, and it came to pass. If you've ever been in one of those seasons, you know what I'm talking about. You cannot wait to hear that. And it came to pass. Now then, continuing in verse 6, the angels say, Come and see the place where the Lord lay, and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead, and indeed he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And so they went out quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to bring his disciples word. And so if you've got your highlighter or if you're an underliner, if you've got a pen available, I'd encourage you to underline these words. Come and see. And verse 7, go and tell. That it is always in that order. It is come and see before go and tell. We get excited about the go and tell part in church, right? Go and tell. Go out and tell everybody you know about Jesus. But do you understand? You have to first come and see. If you haven't come and seen, how then can you go and tell? And so the question might be, what did these ladies come and see? I'm going to turn to John chapter 20, verse 12. John gives us some added insight. In verse 12, he writes, and she, speaking of Mary Magdalene, saw two angels in white sitting, one at the head and the other at the foot, where the body of Jesus had lain. As Mary Magdalene entered the tomb, she saw an angel sitting at the head 
an angel sitting at the foot where Jesus had lain. Now, this takes me all the way back to another spot. We might remember two angels. I know you guys love your Old Testament, especially the law. It's some of your absolute favorite. You're excited about the first five books of the Bible. But if you go back to the construction of the tabernacle in Exodus, in particular Exodus 25, what you'll find is something very interesting with two angels. But before we get there, let's take a little tour of the tabernacle. Because everything that's in the tabernacle actually points to Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is, as you enter this, this tent building, this temporary structure that God had Moses build, which, by the way, he said, this is a diagram of heaven. As you enter into the tabernacle, what you see is a single light, the menorah, that lit up everything in the tabernacle. Jesus Christ, the light of the world, right there, to be example. It, he lights up the entire world. He is the light. Now then, if you go a little farther, you see the table of showbread. What does Jesus say about himself? But I am the bread of life. That provision there for life is placed as an example of Jesus. But then there's a, a room at the end of the tabernacle, and it, it's separated. Not just anyone could get access. Even the priests couldn't get access into this room. It was known as the Holy of Holies, separated by a veil. And not just a little curtain like you might have in your house, but an 18-inch thick veil of woven fabric that separated the main area that the priest could go from the Holy of Holies, this spot where they could only enter once a year on Yom Kippur to make atonement for the sin of the people. And only one person could enter, the high priest. And it was so dangerous to go in before the presence of God that they would actually tie bells around the clothing of the high priest, and they would tie a rope around him so that if for some reason, he did anything wrong, and they quit hearing bells ring, they would know God struck the high priest dead, and they'd pull on the rope and drag him back out, and guess what? Time to pick a new high priest. <laughs> How would you like to be up for that job? Yeah, guys, not that excited all of a sudden about being a high priest, but this is what they would do year after year until all at once, on the day that Jesus drew his last breath there on the cross, the veil was torn, not from bottom to top like man would do, but from top to bottom, this thick veil that separated the presence of God from the people, that limited our access to God, Paul calls this the middle wall of separation was removed at Jesus' last breath. And then we now have access to the Holy of Holies. Now what's inside the Holy of Holies, you might ask. I know you guys are riveted at this point. But one particular object, the Ark of the Covenant, is there in the Holy of Holies. This specific box that Moses was told to build there in Exodus 25. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was built out of wood, but then overlaid with gold. And Moses was told to place in the box what God commanded him to put in the box. Later on in the law, we're told three items were put in the box. The uh, jar of manna, the bread God provided while they were there in the wilderness. The second thing that was put in the box was the rod of Aaron that budded. The third thing were the tablets of stone that God etched the Ten Commandments upon. These three things were in the box. Fascinating to me because all three of these things point to man's failure. What do I mean by that? The jar of manna is God brought them out of the wilderness, brought them into the wilderness there in Sinai. He promised to take care of them. And what's the first thing they did? doubted it. 
they began to complain and grumble and moan that God brought us out here to die. Way to go, Moses. God just parted the Red Sea. And these people immediately began to doubt God's provision. And so what does he do? He, the next morning, provides bread from heaven. That's what God called it. What they called it was, what is it? They reacted just like anytime you put something on baby Madeline's plate that's green. What is it? Ugh. That's how they reacted. The word manna is translated, what is it? So God said, this is bread from heaven. They said, what is it? What well, was a heavenly graham cracker? God provided miraculously bread for them to have, and yet they doubted it. And so God says, put it in the box. The second was the rod of Aaron that budded. Now, Aaron was called by God to lead the people, Aaron and Moses together. Moses was called. He was afraid to speak, so he asked for his brother Aaron to come along. God called these two to lead the people of Israel, the nation of Israel. But wouldn't you know, they began to grumble about their leadership. They'd been wandering around the desert for 40 years. You probably can imagine there'd be some grumbling. And so they, they come to Aaron and Moses, and they say, are you sure you guys are the leaders that God would have picked? And so Moses tells them, for every one of your tribes, pick a leader, take a staff, and they all throw the staff into the middle, their staffs into the middle of this circle. But the, the staff of Aaron, his rod, budded. It actually bloomed right there in front of them. And they knew that it was God doing the directing. But you see, they doubted God's direction. And God says, put the staff in a box. The third thing that's in there are the Ten Commandments. Now, here we have the law of God given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And do you remember that his law, they violated not on day one, but before even day one was complete. As Moses was headed with the original tablets down Mount Sinai, what he found when he got down to the base of the mount was they had set up an altar to the golden calf, one of the gods of Egypt that God had actually, Jehovah had actually wiped out there in Egypt. They began to worship the golden calf. This next part's a little PG-13, so kids, close your ears. Welcome to big church. I'm kidding, Will. You can open your ears. But, but when the Bible says that Moses came down the mountain, that they were worshiping and they were in play, that word is actually the same word as an orgy. They were actually conducting an orgy there at the foot of the mountain, worshiping a golden calf. And so Moses threw those tablets down. He ground them up into powder. He made the people drink of the powder, then went back up and wrote two new tablets. Man's failure to obey the law of God, his commands that he gave. And God says, put them in the box. Now then, on top of the box was a lid that they were instructed to build there in Exodus 25. This uh, lid had two interesting figures on the ends. An angel was to be placed at the head, an angel was to be placed at the foot of the lid. But the lid itself had a name. It was called the mercy seat. So for Yom Kippur, when the chief priest would go into the Holy of Holies, what he would do is he would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it upon the mercy seat to make atonement for the sins of the people, to make a covering over the sin of the people. The mercy seat I want to take you to a spot in 1 John because in the Greek, it has a different name. 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. 
verse 1. This is what John says. He says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is our propitiation for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the whole world. The word propitiation can also be translated mercy seat. Jesus Christ, our propitiation. It's a fancy way of saying payment that turns away wrath. He was the very mercy seat that sat upon the Ark of the Covenant that covered up the failure of the people. Now, what do we see? Is Mary walks into the tomb. She sees an angel at the head, an angel at the foot. I don't know if she was reminded of this scene, but what I'm reminded of is that God has specifically put this in our path that we could come and see. And come and see what? Nothing. <laughs> Where these angels looked down upon that previously was the body of Jesus, the propitiation, the mercy seat, she instead saw nothing. That's precisely as a believer in Jesus Christ what he sees when we consider all of the failings of our past. Have you ever doubted that God would provide? Have you ever doubted God's direction in your life? Right? Have you ever doubted that God would actually give us commands that are good for us? Maybe you've broken one or two or ten or a thousand of those commands. Have you ever failed miserably at what God said to do? I don't know about you, but over and over and over again, what the enemy wants to remind me of is of my failings. He wants me to think about and remember all the things that God said, put them in the box. You failed here. You failed here. You failed here. And I get to, this is, this is basically my every Saturday night. <laughs> but God said, put them in the box. And what we see in this story is as, as Mary goes in there, there's an angel at the head, an angel at the foot, and all the failings and all the missteps and all the mistakes of our past, they're gone. Not just covered over the top of like they'd have to do with the blood of bulls and goats, but completely non-existent. That's something to go and tell people. So if you have had the opportunity to come and see that, come into a place like this or into your scriptures, go and see what God has been up to. Come and see. Then you've got something to go and tell people. If not, what are we sharing? That God's not all powerful? That God doesn't have a plan for your life? But no, he's got a plan. He's got a plan to completely and utterly obliterate sin, which is precisely what he has just done in this spot. In verse 9, and as they went to tell the disciples, behold, Jesus met them saying, rejoice. So they came and, be, and, and held him by the feet and worshiped him. These two ladies, who doctrinally did not have it all together, but devotionally had their hearts in the right spot, Jesus met them right where they were at. Now, we've been studying through the gospel according to Matthew for 11 months. For 11 months, verse by verse, line upon line, we have been trying to study doctrine, studying teachings of Jesus. 
Some of these might have made sense. Some of these might not have made sense. And while I, I know because I've experienced in my own life just how powerful this is, I want to explain to you that if you have no devotion and only doctrine, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what the Word of God says if there is no devotion to Jesus. The reality is the road to hell is paved with people with degrees and certificates on their wall who have been to many Bible studies and they've heard and they've heard and they've studied and yet they are not devoted to Jesus. I want so badly for us to be a church that knows our doctrine, that knows the word of God so that we can know the God of the word. But if we keep it here inside these walls and we don't share it with anybody, if we're not devoted to Jesus, what good have we done? We haven't done anything. In a few minutes, we'll see some men who are doctrinally accurate, and they are headed for hell. Now, Jesus meets them where they're at, and look at what he says. He says, rejoice. This seems like a very strange interaction for Jesus. I mean, we, last time we saw you, you were on a cross. You were being taken down, and now you say to us, rejoice. And so I wondered, what does this word mean? And so I went back to my roots, back to the King James Version, right? The, the words that Jesus spoke, the old King James. And I went back to there, and what it says is Jesus met them and said, all hail. That didn't help me at all. <laughs> so in researching, what I found is that rejoice, or all hail, was a common greeting of the day. It was like uh, greeting you this morning and saying, good morning, welcome in, so good to see you. Now, can you imagine being these ladies? I mean, you're seeing the risen Christ, and what does he have to say? The first thing he says is, good morning. Like, what? Like, it's no big deal. Not mind-blowing. I mean, their minds are blown, but do you realize Jesus' mind wasn't blown? Because <laughs> he's in the resurrection business. And so if you've ever sat back and marveled at somebody who's talented or gifted at something, maybe this has been you. I, I watched Jake and Michaela. I'm so, I'm so blown away at their gift. They just pick up a guitar and they start to play or a violin and, and they can just sing and play beautifully and I'm, I marvel. But to them, that's what they do. That's what Jesus is saying here. This is what I do. Good morning. Good to see you. And so we, we have to be mindful of that, that he is in the resurrection business. The next time you wonder, can he raise this thing from the dead? There's surely no way that he can raise this thing, this spot, this person from the dead. I want you to know he's in the resurrection business. That is no big deal to Jesus. Verse 10, and then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brethren to go to Galilee and where they, where they will see me. And so Jesus' response was, hey, go tell my brothers. Now he tells them specifically to go to Galilee. This is actually very gracious of him for a couple different reasons. First of all, it's gracious because he picked a location that was Galilee. He'd already told them previously. He's just reinforcing for them to go to Galilee. Because why? Uh, his body is gone in Jerusalem. There would be all kinds of people looking for these followers of Jesus who must have stolen the body in Jerusalem. The heat was on in Jerusalem. He loved them enough to tell them to go someplace where they would be safe. He picked a spot for them. 
He also gave them reassurance. I'm going ahead of you. You know, any place Jesus tells you to go, his promise is to always go ahead of you and to prepare a way for you. So be confident of this. I also find it interesting that he calls them brothers. I'm going to turn to Ephesians chapter 4 and tell you why I find that fascinating. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7, Paul writes, But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 9, and now this, he ascended. What is this? What does it mean? But he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. In verse 10, and he who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And so what Paul's writing is that Jesus Christ, before he ascended to heaven, he first descended into the lower parts of the earth. Jesus, this may be mind-blowing for some of you, went to hell after his death on the cross. Now, Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us a description of hell and, and shares it with us in a parable that hell is actually divided into two sections. We have one word for hell. They had uh, three words. This word for hell is Sheol. It's divided between a part where the sinners that were not believers of God went and the other half divided by a great cavern. This is the story of Lazarus and the poor man where the rich man, excuse me, Lazarus and the rich man, the rich man could not get across the great cavern, but he could see Lazarus being cared for in Abraham's bosom, also known as paradise, which makes a little more sense. When Jesus was on the cross, what did he tell the thief on his one side? But today you will be with me in paradise. And so he went. He had to descend, though, down into hell, into paradise. And what we read is that he went there to lead captivity captive, to actually take the captives that were there that didn't have access to heaven because they had not been given the perfect blood of Jesus yet, but they were waiting in a holding chamber. And it was there that these Old Testament heroes were actually brought to heaven as Jesus led the captives from their captivity to Jesus or to, to God himself. Now, all that to share, but here's Jesus. He had to go to hell for these same people that he called brethren. Now, I like all of you. I, I actually, truth is, I love you guys. Really, I do. But if I got to go to hell for you for three days, I am not a big fan. I am probably not coming back with gifts. I'm probably coming back with this. I'm going to knock some sense into you guys. Well, you know what you just did to me? I mean, I'm back now. I had to go to hell for you all. But not Jesus. Jesus comes back with gifts. That's how much he loves you. You understand? That's how happy he was to actually descend and take the keys to hell and death away so that we could have access to the throne room of God. Now then, verse 11. Now while they were going, behold, some of the guard came to the came into the city and reported to the chief priests all the things that had happened. And so these Roman guards who were supposed to be in charge of the tomb there of Jesus. They came to the chief priests to tell them what had taken place. They come to these men who are supposed to be doc doctrinally uh, accurate. 
They had all the learning, all the degrees down. In verse 12, we see how they respond. And when they had assembled with the elders and consulted together, they gave a large sum of money to the soldiers, saying, Tell them his disciples came at night and stole him away while we, were, while we slept. And if this comes to the governor's ear, uh, we will appease him and make you secure. And so they took the money and did as they were instructed. And this saying is commonly reported among the Jews until this day. And so these men, who were determined to be deceitful and bear false witness, and they had now committed bribery, even willing to go so far to be this unrighteous to commit bribery to cover the whole thing up. Now, they had to promise these Roman soldiers that they would take care of them. And the reason is, in uh, the Roman Empire, if you lost one of your prisoners as a, a prison guard, you would actually have to suffer the same fate as the prisoner. And so for these men, they knew that they were facing death by crucifixion if they lost the body of Jesus. This is the reason they were so afraid. And so instead, they proposed this uh, incredible cover-up. They said, tell them the disciples came at night and stole them away while you slept. So these 11 ragtag disciples that are left, these fishermen from Galilee, this is the story, they showed up while you guys were all sleeping. They rolled a 2,000-pound rock away, stole the body of Jesus, and then uh, disappeared without any of you even knowing it. Now that story is preposterous, but the question you might have is, how did they know the disciples stole Jesus' body if they were all sleeping? <laughs> I mean, just, just basic deduction tells you this is ludicrous. So over the course of time, other theories have come out. My favorite, and by favorite, I mean the most ridiculous and blasphemous, is one called the swoon theory. And this theory as to what happened to Jesus was that he didn't actually die upon the cross, but instead Jesus uh, simply passed out from the pain. And so as they took him off the cross, he wasn't dead. They put him into the tomb. He was still alive. And then three days later, after recovering from his injuries, he unwrapped himself from his mummified state, rolled the stone away, and escaped. And so Jesus, who had been beaten, this is recorded historically with the scourge, had been whipped to the point that his internal organs were now showing. Uh, he had been crucified. And to make sure he was dead, you might recall the Roman guards actually shoved a spear through his side, which water and blood poured out. Uh, by the way, side note, uh, the same fluids as birthing fluids poured out from the side of Jesus. We won't go down that road right now. That this same Jesus uh, pretended to be dead or passed out from the pain and then was able somehow physically to raise himself, unwrap himself, and escape without 50 trained Roman guards seeing him. This reminds me of uh, what I was told in survival. You know, if you are uh, being uh, chased by a bear, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to play dead, right? I heard a comedian say once, how long should I play dead? Should I wait until there's nothing but a hand left? Is, have I played dead for long enough to where maybe the bear will stop eating me? So this feels a lot like that, like one of the most ridiculous things you can imagine. But one of the other things I find interesting about this supposed hoax is, would you give your life for a hoax? Would you lay down your life for a false story? Because 10 of the 11 disciples that were left all became martyrs. James was the first martyr recorded in the Bible. Our Bible says he was beheaded uh, history from Fox's Book of Martyrs actually tell us that their idea of a beheading was they would saw people in half. They actually saw James uh, not from 
uh, the side to side, but from the bottom up. Saw it in half for a hoax. Thomas, we're told in that same book, uh, was beaten uh, in the head by a club until he died. Peter, not wanting to be crucified like Jesus, requested that he would be crucified upside down. Uh, John was one of the few that actually escaped martyrdom, but before he did, Caesar Nero had him dipped in a vat of boiling oil. <laughs> and when John didn't die, he sent him off to the island of Patmos to be deserted. That's where he wrote the revelation of Jesus Christ. All these for a hoax? Men don't die for hoaxes. They don't. They don't give up their life unless they have seen the resurrected Jesus. So then in verse 16, then the 11 disciples went away to Galilee to the mountain which Jesus had appointed for them. Apparently Jesus had his favorite mountain. And when they had saw him, they worshiped him. But some doubted. I find that fascinating. Some worshiped, but then there were others that doubted. By the way, when we come in here any given Sunday, there's a whole group that worships, but do you know some doubt? There's doubts in people's minds. And there were some right there standing before Jesus, and some will doubt. Because this faith, our relationship with Jesus, is one built upon faith. I cannot see every single thing. I have to, at some point in time, have faith. And faith, it's important to point out, is different than just believing. James made this very clear in James chapter 2. James, the half-brother of Jesus, <clears throat> didn't believe in him until his resurrection. We're told uh, that James was actually visited by his risen brother, and he became a believer. And in James chapter 2, verse 19, he says, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe, and they tremble. <laughs> You're doing a good job believing. Even the demons in hell believe, and they tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith, do you, excuse me, but do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? How does your faith play out? It plays out through obedience. Do you actually believe? What the demons did not possess is they did not possess any obedience to God. They believed, but they would not obey. And so our, our obeying is actually where faith manifests itself. And that is, I want to be careful to paint the picture that we do not work our way into salvation. This is not a works-based faith. Instead, we do faith-based works. It's because we believe that we go serve. We now get to go serve. We get the opportunity to go at 10 o'clock at night and help international kids move in. We get to go unload things at a concert in sweltering heat. We get to go do these things as a symbol of Jesus Christ. Jesus with skin on. These are the things we get to go do as faith manifests itself in each of us. Now then verse 18, And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. If ever you doubt who's in charge, Jesus makes this very clear. He says, all authority has been given to me. Where? In heaven and on earth. I think that covers the gamut. All authority has been given to him. It's all 
his. And his command then in verse 19 is go. Because all authority has been given to me, now go. And so we get excited when foreign missionaries come in, right? And they talk about going overseas, going to Africa. We want to see people saved all around the world. Let's go. And we give them a check and we go, go for it. Jesus says, go, go. But in the Greek, um, this is a, I'm sure I'm going to butcher my Greek right now. But this word go can be translated as you are going. As Jesus says go, what he's really saying is as you are going. As you are going where? As you're going to Walmart. As you're going to work. As you're going to church. As you're going about your day. As you're going anywhere that you're going, our call is to make disciples of all nations. Disciples, not converts. We were never called for the purpose of conversion and leaving it at that. We were called as a people to go as we are going to make disciples. What does discipleship look like? It looks like investment. It looks like life upon life, doing what we do every day. Them seeing Jesus lived out in you, that's what discipleship looks like. And it's done all based in his word, in the name and by the power and in the word of Jesus. That's what we're called to go do. Go and make disciples. He goes on to say, baptizing them. Once they become disciples, disciplined followers of Jesus, we're to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I want to take an opportunity to point out that baptism is not for salvation. It is for identification. Baptism doesn't save anyone. Being a disciple, a follower, identifying with Jesus is what saves. A baptism is an outward sign of an inward change. And I want to encourage you guys, if you want to identify with Jesus, take the opportunity to get baptized. We've got an awesome baptismal right back here. I'm happy to fill it up. I even got a water heater make it nice and warm for you. If I'm not careful, it turns into a hot tub. That's what happened last time. But we have an opportunity to identify with him. Now, you've been baptized before in your life. I want to encourage you, if you've walked away and you want to show everyone in your circle that you identify with Jesus, get baptized again. Nowhere does it say you only get baptized once and that's it. I'd encourage you to get baptized again. This guy sitting right here got baptized at seven years old, walked away from Jesus for only, I don't know, 28 years, got baptized again in the Sea of Galilee to identify with Jesus. There's nothing wrong with it. So I'd encourage you to talk to me if you're interested. But what we're doing essentially is showing that we are new creations. If I'm buried with him, so are my sins. But then I get a rise with him and my sins are no more forgotten. The box is empty. Now verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded to you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What a promise by Jesus. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm going to be with you even to the very end. Is it going to be terrifying at times? Absolutely. Are you going to question yourself? Yep. But even to the end of the age, his promise is to be with us. And I love the way Matthew ends his gospel. Amen. The word amen means so be it. So be it. 
It's going to be this way. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20 is the place I want to end this morning. The Apostle Paul, writing here to the church in Galatia, he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God. The life I now live, I live in faith by the Son of God. For the rest of my years, I get to live out in faith in Jesus because he is risen. If there is a story to go out and share with people, it is simply the proclamation that he is risen. I am risen because he first rose from the grave. Last story I'll share with you before we close. Uh, The picture I put up here on the screen, that's a picture of a guy named William uh, Sankey. And William Sankey was a pastor, a Methodist pastor in the early 1900s to the middle 1900s in England. And as he uh, was, became known as a very famous orator throughout the teaching circles, he loved to teach on the resurrection. Uh, at the age of 58, though, Sankey was uh, diagnosed with a disease that caused his muscles to atrophy. And this disease would actually take hold uh, rather quickly in his life. And so much so that two years later, uh, right before his death, uh, everything had atrophied, including his vocal cords. He was no longer to share his love or proclaim the name of Jesus. The only uh, thing he had that still worked were just two fingers. Two fingers that he was able to use to scratch out a note to his daughter two weeks before he died on Easter Sunday. And he said, how terrible a thing it is to not be able to cry out, he is risen on Easter Sunday. But what a more terrible thing it would be to have a voice and have never cried it out. He is risen. He is risen. And so, Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of Matthew. Thank you for the resurrection story, Lord. Thank you that we get to identify with you in your death, and that we get to also identify with you in your resurrection. Father, thank you for taking the failings and the missteps and the misgivings of our past. Thank you for completely obliterating them. Father, I want to pray for those that, much like me, tend to remember those far too often and remember that when Mary looked upon the place where you laid, they saw nothing. Thank you, Father, for that promise. Thank you that we get a rise with you in this glorious resurrection. Father, please help us to come and see and go and tell all just what you have done. Just like the woman at the well, so excited to come and tell the glorious things that Jesus shared with her. Help us, Lord, this week as we're challenged to go and share with people the power of the resurrection. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's all stand. We're going to sing this song again this week. And uh, so let's all worship together as we sing. Here we go. Saturday was silent. Surely it was through. Since when I
stopped you Friday's disappointment Sunday's empty tomb Since when has impossible ever stopped you This is the sound of dry bones rattling This is a praise make a dead man walk again This is the sound of dry bones To save and deliver and heal and restore anything that he wants to. Just ask the man who was thrown on the bones of Elijah. If there's anything that he can't do. Just ask the stone that was rolled at the tomb. This is a praise, make a dead man walk again. Open the grave, I'm coming out, I'm gonna live, gonna live again. This is the sound of dry bones rattling. And the church says, Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for resurrection. Praise you, Lord. Thank you guys so much for an awesome Sunday. Thank you for a wonderful journey through Matthew, a little sneak peek. Next week, we'll be starting the book of Acts. So we'll continue with the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And I look forward to beginning that with you guys. If you need prayer at all, feel free to come up front. God bless you.